Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk about a book that I think asks and answers an incredibly important question. Granted, a very nerdy question, but sometimes those are the best ones. So the book has come out from Oxford University Press and is straightforwardly titled The Politics of Evaluation in International Organizations. And the question it's asking is very much around kind of, hang on, what is evaluation? Why are so many international organizations doing it? And what is actually happening with all of this time and money spent um, evaluating various projects? Does it do anything? If so, what is it doing? So as I said, this is a pretty nerdy question, but has some really important implications and relates to a whole bunch of different topics. So I'm very pleased to welcome one of the two authors of the book to the podcast, Vitas Jankowskis. And the book is also written by Dr. Stefan Eckhart. Uh, Vitas, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Many thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Could you please start us off by introducing yourself and your background a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book and why you and Stefan decided to write it together. Yes, sure. So I'm, I'm Vitas Jankowskis and um, I'm actually originally from uh, Lithuania, where the, the complicated name comes from, but I've been uh, living for the past 10 years in Germany. That's also where I've, I did my bachelor's in international relations and then later my master's in political science and my PhD in political science at the University of Munich. And I'm still an associate research fellow at the University of Munich, uh, Ludwig University of Munich um, there. And um, I'm also a postdoctoral research fellow at the Zeppelin University in Friedrichshafen, which is a very nice uh, place in the south of Germany, next to the beautiful Lake of Constance, a place which everyone recommend to go. People go there for holidays, others work there. And that is also where my great co-author works, uh, Stefan Eckert, who is a professor for public administration and public policy. And uh, together they wrote this book um, uh, and it came out last year, so just recently. Um, But, you know, everything began quite a while ago. Actually, I I would say probably somewhere around May 2016. And that is when Stefan was conducting uh, interviews in Brussels at the headquarters of NATO. So Stefan is in Brussels and he is asking um, NATO staff members to, among many things, to describe the role of evidence in, in, in the military alliance, which NATO is, right? And, you know, this is when we received a very uh, controversial, I would say, answer, which uh, somehow inspired us to look more into this topic. And uh, the answer was the following. When he asked uh, one of the staff members at NATO to describe this role of evidence in the organization, the person said us, in an organization that is based on consensus, right? And that is NATO, what is it about, right? There is no objective information. If the only way to agree in a summit community is to say the earth is flat, we would say the earth is flat, even even though we know it is not. 
right? And by we, the person meant the, the bureaucracy, the administration of, of NATO. So because the consensus is what ultimately counts, and so there is no objective information out there. So that was the statement, right? And somehow um, it, it, it shook us a bit. However, at the same time, the statement resonated a lot with um, our, our previous reflections on, on um, the research studying bureaucratic influence and the political interest that bureaucrats may have and in general, these politics uh, surrounding international governmental organizations. So we printed the statement out. We, we put it on the walls at our offices back then in Munich, uh, Stefan and I. Um, and, and Stefan developed this idea into a project, which was then later funded by the German Research Foundation. And so this is where, where I joined him. And we started this uh, multi-year uh, uh, journey down uh, the rabbit hole of uh, UN evidence-based policymaking, looking specifically at evaluation as a key tool uh, to answer such questions like, you know, how does the UN work? How do the international organizations work? Um, is it, uh, do they perform as they should or not? Um, and in general, what is this tension between power and evidence or evaluation, right, as, 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 as it is evidence-based? Can evaluation speak truth to power? Um, now, why we thought it matters? Well, for one, um, you know, a year ago in 2015, so before these, this, uh, this famous interview of, of Steffen with NATO, uh, the United Nations introduced the Sustainable Development Goals, right, which we all know as DGs, their ambitious uh, set of um, development targets, which should be achieved by 2030. And many said, well, it's great and, and they're ambitious and, and, you know, these are the nice aims. But how do we actually know whether the UN is achieving these objectives, right? How do how can we know about the progress? And the answer that the UN would, would give us um, is evaluation, right? So the UN Secretary General back then, uh, Ki-moon, said that evaluation everywhere at every level will play a key role in, in, in implementing this new development agenda. And then later on, Antonio Guterres, the current Secretary General, said, that we need a cultural evaluation, independent, you know, objective, full transparency. And so we, we thought, well, it's actually quite important, right? If evaluation is the tool which should give us um, this objective knowledge about whether the UN is, is achieving these SDGs, whether all of these programs and projects are making good progress or no, we should actually know how politicized it is. And so that is sort of the background um, ideas which motivated Stefan and, and myself to write the book. What an interesting backstory. Um, I love the idea of kind of printing something out and sticking it on the wall and going, hang on a second, what's actually happening here? Um, so thank you for giving us that background. Is there anything further you'd like to tell us about kind of the questions you sort of consolidated all of that thinking around in asking in the book, um, given that you've told us a bit about sort of how you developed them? Yes. So, you know, evaluation is usually thought to be a very technocratic uh, tool, right? Sort of almost a scientific-like exercise because per definition, evaluation is a systematic assessment, um, research-based, right, of a specific activity, be it a project in a developing country or a program or a, the, the whole portfolio of, the, of a specific UN agency, so it is a very, a very thorough exercise where 
um, different questions are being answered regarding the efficiency of that evaluated activity, let's say a project, um, effectiveness, sustainability, impact, and, and other similar things. Um, it is based on re- research which was collected, data, analysis, right? It is, it is really quite sophisticated thing. And if you would look at a report, uh, a, a typical evaluation report produced by the United Nations, one of the agencies, it is a very long report. Right? It's about 100 pages long, and you, you, you will lose yourself reading it. If you, you know, it, it takes time to understand what's going on there because it is so sophisticated and so detailed. The evaluators would go to the affected populations. They would interview you know, the people living in those villages where, let's say, the project was conducted, uh, etc. So there is a lot of knowledge there. Um, and so the, the typical assumption is that it is this technocratic tool of modern public management. Um, however, uh, in our thinking, you know, we, and that is one of the key highlights of the book, is that evaluation does not exist in a vacuum, right? It is surrounded by stakeholders which have political interests. Affected populations have their own interest. The member states have their own interest. The I.O. The, the, the management of the international organization, the secretariat have their own evaluation-related interests. And so we thought that there are actually two different perspectives on evaluation, the functional one, and then the second is the political one. We are not the first to say that evaluation is political or can be political, uh, but we wanted to really highlight that. And that was you know, what, what was driving our interest in the politics of evaluation uh, in this book, Vildavsky, a famous uh, scholar of public administration, said already in the 70s that evaluations can be used as weapons in the political wars. So, you know, the discussion goes quite a long time back in history of, of public administration, political research. Um, but we, we, we had this feeling that there is not so much um, about these political um, or this politics of evaluation at the international level when it comes to the UN, when it comes to the international governmental organizations. And so we, we focused on the international level, asking to what extent do we observe politics at different levels or, or, or steps of evaluation, right? To what extent evidence for, for the political perspective, which I described on evaluation, prevails let's say, in the institutional design of how these evaluation systems are built, in the, in the perceptions of evaluation staff, so in those evaluators among the evaluators themselves, but also in the content of these evaluation reports, can we find political biases there? And also in the way how evaluations are used. So how, do the, you know, how, how are the reports used? Can we, can we actually find examples where it's not really about this functional perspective, meaning course correction and accountability and learning, but more about the political interests of those stakeholders, which I mentioned. Mm. This raises so many things uh, that are, are so worth investigating and asking about, but I think also kind of raises the stakes because those are great questions, but can they be answered? How can they be answered? I mean, that was certainly my question reading this initial section of the book. What sorts of examples can be found? What sorts of methods and data can be used to answer this? So could you maybe talk us through those aspects of the research? Sure. So as you correctly point out, right, it's quite a complex um, question, right? And it, of course, therefore demands, first of all, 
lot of conceptual work. So Stefan and I spend a lot of time thinking about how can we conceptualize the politics of evaluation at different levels? Um, and we can delve into that later. But, you know, the question, how can we, def- you know, how do we define politics of evaluation? What are the key actors involved, etc.? So that is a lot of conceptual work needed to be done there. And then later on, of course, the question of how can we empirically observe it? So um, this book basically provides um, one of the first comparative empirical evidence on, on, on evaluation politics as we define it in international organizations um, based on a mixed method research design. So first of all, we said, well, we need to define the scope and scale of our research, right? What kind of organizations do we look at? And we focused mostly on the UN agencies on 21 international governmental organizations. Um, and um, what we did is that we wanted to know how their evaluation systems are designed. So we went through all of the evaluation policies and evaluation documents to really basically outline both the similarities and differences as to how these organizations evaluate the work um, and, and what, kind of, what kind of systematic patterns can we, can we observe there. Later on, we said, well, we also know to, want, to, want to know how do the evaluators, so these evaluation units, how do they see their work and these political issues? And so we spoke with um, every um, evaluation unit from our sample. So we, you know, um, conducted over 120 interviews with evaluators, but also with the management people from these international organizations, with member state representatives, and they traveled to, to the headquarters of these organizations. So we really went uh, down the rabbit hole of, of, of uh, UN evaluation machinery, which is actually a very big mechan- uh, mechanism. It's, 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 a, it's a huge, um, it's, it's also a booming business, right, evaluation. We can speak about that later. But um, nevertheless, so, you know, what we did is that we conducted desk review of, of how these evaluation systems are designed. Then we conducted interviews um, to gain qualitative insights as to how these evaluation units work and also how the evaluations are used. But in addition to that, we also wanted to look into the evaluation reports themselves. And so what we did in the book and what we continue to do um, beyond the book's research, um, we looked into the evaluation reports. When it comes to the book, we uh, manually coded the executive summaries of 240 evaluation reports from selected international organizations from our sample. And we wanted to see, you know, whether we can find any systematic, well, let's say biases or patterns in the in how these uh, reports are written. And so we did it on the basis of 16,000 hand-coded sentences. So that is, you know, the, the, the empirical basis, um, the desk review, the research interviews, and the qualitative text analysis of the evaluation reports. That is a massive amount of work um, to answer these important and complicated questions. So thank you for summarizing kind of the many different things that both of you did. I'd like to pick up on something you mentioned in that answer about kind of the size of evaluation um, and the, the scale of it that you're looking into. Could we talk a bit about that? How big a deal are we talking? How many people are involved? How much money? How much time is all of this taking? Sure. Indeed, evaluation has grown quite um, quite uh, spectacularly in the in the last um, decades. 
of course, evaluation as such, um, I mean, it's it's not new, right? Um, in our lives, we evaluate everything on a daily basis. You know, in our mundane situations, we sort of try to assess and learn from our mistakes. Um, and so governments as well, they, they you know, that is um, something which exists already um, for quite a long time. If you look at the history of evaluation, at the emergence of evaluation, already by the 19th century, national governments were using uh, simple statistical reports to assess their decision-making. Um, however, or let's say not however, but actually uh, fortunately, right, they uh, developed more and more sophisticated tools to do so, to inform their decision-making. And so by the end of the 20th century, evaluation become really very integral to national state governance procedures. Now, when it comes to the international level, right, the, the international organizations, here... Um, we could say that there are probably three main phases of how evaluation in the United Nations, but also in general at the international level, developed. And the first phase, um, which was very small in scale, right, goes back to the early 70s until approximately late 90s, where first, we say, pioneer international organizations such as the World Bank, the UNDP, developed their own evaluation units within the organizations. That was quite new, something which wasn't really so popular as it is right now. And the World Bank especially was seen sort of as, as a key driver behind this um, wave of uh, evaluation, uh, this new public management agenda, right? Um, they are still very, very, um, well, let's say ambitious and modern uh, today, uh, driving evaluation culture. Um, but it was really just driven by several organizations and, and uh, only later in the second phase, which uh, was the first decade of, of the 21st century, marked then the development of the majority evaluation units in the international organizations when other organizations joined these pioneers and helped to consolidate the evaluation function quite, quite significantly. Um, the third phase um, is the so-called latecomers, um, organizations which uh, joined the others um, in the last decade and uh, are still developing their evaluation units. But overall, today, evaluation and international organizations, you know, has flourished. So thousands of consultants work with UN evaluators, and they produce hundreds of evaluation reports annually. We try to estimate and calculate how many we we, we have an approximate number of 750 evaluation reports produced by the UN agencies every year. Now, if you, if, if you remember how long these reports are, you can probably approximately understand how much information is in, this, uh, in these reports and also what kind of costs are related to that, right? I mean, it's quite difficult to, to calculate uh, the exact uh, cost because of the different uh, organizations and how they how they calculate evaluation budgets but approximately we assume that uh, overall we have uh, an estimated evaluation spending of around 430 million US dollars uh, which is about um, the entire annual budget of such organizations like UNESCO or the ILO um, when it comes to the overall UN UN system right so 
millions of dollars are being uh, put into evaluation, and that is fine, right, because of uh, the very important role that evaluation has to play and also the the great potential. However, um, we should be careful, um, or, or let's say we should acknowledge also the political side of this whole exercise, which is sort of the, the task um, of our of our book. And uh, maybe another interesting fact, you know, how much does an average report cost for an evaluation? So according to the UN's Office for Internal Oversight Service, uh, an average cost for an evaluation report is about half a million US dollar, which includes, you know, the overheads and and um, uh, re- overhead resources for monitoring and evaluation across 23 UN agencies. So that's quite a lot and quite quite expensive, right? Quite an expensive exercise. Um, and I, I recommend everyone to look into these evaluation reports. I mean, that is, uh, of course, a very technical task, but it's it can be quite interesting. If you want to know, let's say, how is FAO doing in Georgia or how how has UNDP been doing when it comes to its gender policies? Um, these are kind of reports which you need to look at to understand the, the level of performance here, given how expensive they are. I think we should pay a bit more attention to these uh, arguably or or not, technocratic documents. Thank you for taking us through the scale of this and also the evolution of kind of how we got to this point. Uh, Because I think if the questions you were discussing, asking earlier in our conversation kind of weren't important enough, that the scale of this really makes the point clear of just how important it is to investigate what these reports are doing, not just the kind of end result, but also the process of creating these reports given how many people are involved, how long the reports are, how much is covered in them. So now that we understand the questions that are being asked, the massive amount of work the two of you went into to analyze all of this, the scale of the task and the kind of area, can you walk us through the ways in which you've discovered in your findings that evaluation can be political and help us understand why it matters? Yeah, sure. So... I'll try to do that, of course, as, as as briefly as possible and in a systematic manner. And first interesting finding that we observed is that UN agencies differ significantly as to how they how do they design their evaluation systems. And these differences matter later on for the politics of evaluation. There are three clusters as to how organizations um, organize, let's say, their evaluation systems according to the involvement of, or regard with regards to the involvement of important stakeholders. So you need to understand that in international governmental organizations, these evaluation units, they do not exist, um, they, they are not completely independent, but they actually depend on key stakeholders, right? And, and these are either the member states you know, ambassadors sitting in the governing bodies of the, um, the executive boards and the governing bodies of the international organizations or the management, right? The secretariat, the management people. And we, we, we observed that in some organizations, it is actually the member states which decide upon the agenda of these evaluation units, what has to be evaluated. It is the member states which approve the head of evaluation unit and it is also the member states which decide about, upon the resources of evaluations. So that is the case, for instance, at the World Bank or, or, or the IMF or UNDP. However, in other organizations, it is completely different. 
It is the administration, the management, which makes these decisions regarding the key resources of evaluation system. And then in some others, in the third cluster, um, it, is, it is the mixed control. So just to give an example of the ma- management-dominated or the bureaucracy-dominated evaluation system designs, that is the case at the IOM, the International Organization for Migration, as well as at UNHCR or uh, UN Women. And then in this third cluster, which I mentioned, which has the mixed control systems, um, where both member states and the IO administration are involved in approving evaluation unit, its resources, uh, head and, and, and agenda, um, this mixed control cluster is to be found in such organizations like FAO, UNESCO, or UNEP, UN Environmental Programme. So we observed, and that you know, we, we, these differences as to who controls key evaluation system resources, and we thought, well, first of all, that is a bit surprising, given that it is the same UN system, and also given that there is the so-called UN Evaluation Group, which seeks to harmonize evaluation processes across the UN organizations, and yet we have these large differences. However, we also said, well, probably it matters as to who these evaluation units tend to orientate to, or differently put, who these evaluation units see as the key users, key protectors or sponsors. And indeed, when we spoke with the the evaluation unit uh, staff, we observed that in those organizations where the member states make these key decisions regarding the evaluation resources, the evaluators tend to see them as as key users of evaluation, as key uh, sponsors, protectors in case of issues. They tend to go to the member states and not the management. Um, and that probably makes sense, right? This goes in line with the very famous principal agent uh, theory, where the agent orientates to those to that to the, to that principle in the multiple principle setting, which has the most power on the agent, right? So that is the same in international organizations and when it comes to the evaluation systems. In those organizations, the LAIO management controls these stakeholders, the, the, these evaluation resources. Evaluators tend to focus much more on on, on the management. And in a mixed case cluster, we do not see one, you know, this clear orientation to one or the other stakeholder. It is both which seem to matter. And that is based on our qualitative interviews. So what we have now is that evaluation systems differ in their institutional design. Evaluators um, actually respond to that so that they perceive different stakeholders as more important than others. And interestingly, what we also find in the next step when we interviewed the management and the member states, these differences also affect as to who uses primarily evaluation as such. And not just functionally, but also politically, more importantly, right? So we found that in those organizations where the member states, let's say, define the resources, as I mentioned, it is also the member states who primarily use evaluation for their own political interests. Let me give you an example. These powerful states tend to cherry-pick evaluation results and then use them as a bargaining chip in international negotiations, or they used to, they, or they, they, they tend to use these evaluations to contain the management's bureaucratic influence. Now, in other cases where the IO management controls the evaluation resources, um, we observe that I owe, that these administrations, these managements tend to also use these evaluations strategically, for instance, to increase their bureaucratic influence by, uh, vis-a-vis the member states, or let's say to, in, to, to exercise control internally. 
And the, and the final step, when it comes to the evaluation reports, we also see significant uh, variation here as well, based on the institutional design. And that is when I come to the, to, to the next point, you know, about the evaluation reports and whether they, they contain political biases. And that is then based on the text analysis of the reports. And here, we also observe that stakeholders can affect the content of evaluation reports. For instance, we observed that, uh, or we found systematic differences as to how evaluation recommendations are written, right? So every report has recommendations. And that is a very significant part of evaluation report, because when you read a report, right, you want to know, so what should the next steps be based on your evaluation findings, right? So we, we coded these recommendations and we observed that in UN organizations where member states control evaluation unit system resources, such as, as I mentioned, staff appointments, budget and agenda, evaluation recommendations are more specific in the language, right? They, 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 they leave less room for interpretation as to whether or how the recommendations should be implemented. And you can imagine that there is a big difference whether I say consider closing the country office or if I say in a recommendation, close the country office, right? <laughs> so these kind of small differences can be observed. Um, and also such recommendations rarely imply the need for more resources and oversight reduction, which goes in line with typical member state interests, as we would assume political interests, when member states usually want to optimize the bureaucratic resources, right? Not really expand the bureaucratic mechanism and they want to maintain control over the I.O. management. And so also conversely, in organizations where the I.O. management um, controls these evaluation unit resources, the recommendations we found to take, uh, on a, you know, take a much broader tone, more ambiguous uh, tone, um, much more language such as consider or you could, you would, you, 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 you know, not such imperative tone, these recommendations were also found to be more likely to advocate for increased resources for the organization and reduced oversight. Um, so that is, you know, uh, sort of some of the key examples when it comes to the the politics of evaluation. And uh, actually, in in our in our extended research, we even went into the reports into more details. And I can also give you examples what kind of other. Um, political biases we we found, uh, but when it comes to the book, you know, institutional design differences, stakeholder um, influence through that, right? The orientation of the evaluators to the more dominant, more powerful stakeholder, and then also the different use of evaluation based on who controls these resources, and finally some of the biases which we demonstrate, especially when it comes to the recommendations and the reports themselves. So. Everything you've just told us kind of puts a lot of skepticism on the claims that are not always made, but sometimes made, that these evaluations are independent, that these are done by independent evaluation units or independent evaluators. Given what you've told us, um, and of course the research more broadly, are any of these evaluations or evaluation units independent? Well, that is a that is a very significant question because you know the message which we want to send is not that we should abandon evaluation or that we should isolate it completely from stakeholders. Um, instead, we say that the solution 
to evaluation politics lies first of all in recognizing the influence surrounding uh, uh, evaluation units, right? Recognizing the political interests of, of, of member states, of the management, and then designing evaluation systems accordingly. And we also have you know, specific recommendations which we think uh, would be plausible to implement to reduce um, the political influence upon the evaluators. But at the same time, we argue that indeed um, evaluation units are not, well, they cannot be completely independent because they are part of the organization. And if you are part in, of, a, of an organization, you are dependent on, on resources, on you know staff approval, on the approval of agenda. And that is normal. That is, there, there are no ways to, to, to escape, right? Even if you, let's say, hire external consultants, these external consultants still have certain level of incentives, um, you know, to continue working with you or to get another contract later on. And so they themselves are also, to a certain degree, uh, dependent on your, you know, on, on, the, on the data quality that you provide. Uh, they may also want to continue working with you. And so um, it is quite, quite, a, quite a complicated issue, right? You can build evaluation processes which are very independent um, when it comes to data collection, you know, technical issues, data analysis, data interpretation, data visualization. But when it comes to report writing, and especially when it comes to how these reports are then later on used, you cannot escape politics. And we should acknowledge that. But to answer your question regarding specifically evaluation units, we actually find evaluation units to be to be, to be um, well, let's say, good gatekeepers uh, or, or, let's say, safeguards um, as compared to other alternatives. So one alternative would be to say, um, well, we should create decentralized evaluation units, meaning that every country office, every program or, you know, office in, in, in a city where the project is being done has to decide upon um, external consultants and then conduct evaluations because they know better the landscape, they know better um, uh, the work there. However, we find this alternative very comp- uh, controversial. And that is because in another article, uh, which is uh, published uh, 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 in, in, in the Journal of Public Administration Review, we demonstrate that such evaluation reports, which are uh, managed by operative IO units, let's say country offices, they are systematically more positive as to compared to evaluations managed by the UN evaluation units, by the centralized evaluation units, right? And these differences are significant. Um, and we are also quite skeptical when it comes to the idea of creating a UN-wide uh, evaluation unit, you know, one for all of these organizations. And that is because um, there are still significant differences when it comes to, you know, UN agencies. And so... Although UN, um, well, these centralized evaluation units are not completely uh, isolated from the politics, they are still better options to have than decentralized evaluations or just one single centralized evaluation unit for all UN agencies. Mm. Thank you for walking through kind of the nuance of that, because it isn't as simple as sort of a yes or no, um, but it is also worth understanding kind of what the different options are here. I suppose because you've mentioned the practical uh, implications and recommendations from the book, could we maybe turn to that aspect of the research and walk us through what you think should be done? 
Sure. So, you know, as you said, um, you know, one of the key messages of the book is to say that, look, although we highlight a lot um, the, the, the politics involved in the evaluation process, we, we still think that evaluation is very useful, right? In the book, we do focus more on politics rather than this functional perspective, which I described in the beginning of our conversation, right? We do not um, analyze uh, the other side of the coin, so to say, to the extent to which evaluation is useful learning, is useful learning or course corrections. And that happens a lot. Instead, you know, in the book, we actually wanted to, to, to analyze this neglected side of the coin, which is the political one. And so the, the idea shouldn't be that it's only politics. Um, the idea is rather to say it's also politics involved in evaluation. And so, as I said, the solution is actually to recognize these politics and then design evaluation systems accordingly. And so our recommendations are the following. First of all, we suggest moving towards evaluation systems with mixed control of resources, right? Where both member states and the administration are involved in approving evaluation staff or head of evaluation unit, its agenda and budget. And why does that make sense? Well, we argue that by consulting uh, with each other and by approving the mechanism collaboratively, such systems, such evaluation systems, create uh, more integrity, a more trustworthy environment. It also embeds both stakeholders in the use of evaluation, so it increases the relevance of evaluation in the organization. Instead of making it a tool merely for the use of one powerful stakeholder, it also you know increases the objectivity and and uh, enables comprehensive assessment of the organization's performance. So that is one. Second, based on uh, what we what we observed uh, when it comes to recommendations in the evaluation reports, we argue that maybe it's a good idea to 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 work on on better guidance uh, when it comes to the formulation of these evaluations, uh, evaluation recommendations, right? To make sure that they are um, based on the findings. And uh, since we observed such different language uh, in when it comes to recommendations across organizations, it seems that it's not really quite clear how, to, how, how strict they should be, what kind of imperatives should be used, and uh, therefore a guideline, a manual, or you know, just uh, trainings when it comes to crafting recommendations can, can increase objectivity. And finally, when it comes to, to these ideas, and there are some ideas among the practitioners to create a system-wide evaluation mechanism for the whole UN, we, we think that such an approach would struggle to consider the unique uh, characteristics of each program, fund, agency, organization, right? maintain stakeholder involvement. And therefore, we think that in uh, the United Nations, the different organizations should have their own standalone evaluation units. They should move them out of other departments, such as the uh, internal oversight um, services. Uh, let's take an example, the OCE, right? Also the, the security organization. Um, they have an evaluation unit inside an internal oversight services or internal oversight department, right? I'm not sure exactly how it's called, but basically the idea is that you have a department for internal oversight, a head of department, right? And then inside you have an evaluation unit with another head of evaluation unit. However, usually um, 
as we observed in other organizations, the logic upon which these broader internal oversight services work is different from the logic of evaluation because logic is uh, the logic of evaluation is much more about learning is less about financial auditing and accountability right and so there might be conflicts between the two and it is best that each organization has its standalone independent evaluation unit which is centralized and uh, which reports directly to both member states and the head of the organization, the secretary general or the director general. Hmm. So those are some very clear and practical recommendations. I wonder if you can also talk about what you think this research should or does perhaps change more on a kind of theoretical assumptions level, especially for those of us researching how international organizations work? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, one thing um, which we demonstrate refers or relates to the bureaucratic influence um, uh, in international organizations. And although we are now at this stage uh, where I think most scholars agree that uh, the secretariats, the international public administrations, as we call them, IPAs, right, international public administrations, are actors in their own right, they, they Initially, you know, realists said that um, it's only member states who play a role, right, when it comes to international politics. Now we, we more, more and more go into the question not whether uh, international secretariats matter, but how do they matter? Um, I think our book demonstrates that, you know, how very technocratic issues such as evaluation can be used as tools for influence by these bureaucracies. Right, we, we we do show that um, they can uh, con- if if they control the institutional design completely, they can use these tools to exert their influence vis-a-vis the member states. So that is, I think, one right. The importance or the highlight um, of the bureaucratic influence in international organizations when it comes to the international public administrations, the IPAs. Um, second, probably relates to the principal agent theory, and I think. Uh, um, you know the, the the principal agent theory is one of the one of the key tools, one of the most famous tools, right, to analyze different hierarchical settings. And in this case, we also have a hierarchical setting. We also have um, very nice examples for multiple principal setting. We also see, um, we and we do see how the agent has to navigate between multiple principles. The agent being the evaluation unit. And then um, the principles being the multiple principles being the, I, the 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 management of the international organization, the bureaucracy on the one hand, the member states on the other hand, and again, even in in such uh, arguably neutral technocratic uh, functional di- um, dimensions or relationships like evaluation, these principal agent behaviors exist. And they bring their own tensions, which we all know, right? The potential agency slack um, and also the, the this dilemma for the agent. Where should, to, to, to which principle should I orientate myself, considering that I actually should be independent, but I cannot be independent because I am in a principal agent relationship. Um, and so I think using this principal agent theory lenses to analyze such, such uh, relationships in international organizations regardless of how technocratic or arguably neutral they are, can help us better understand the functioning of international organizations. Mm. 
I think there's a lot of things that um, very much can and probably will develop from the book. And it sounds like from some of your answers, um, you and Stefan are already going further on this topic. So would you like to tell us about the further research the two of you are doing um, beyond what's already in the book? Sure. You know, we thought that it is very important to look at these um, evaluation reports themselves. For one, because we have them. So they are publicly available, right? And that is very convenient for a researcher to find such a good empirical basis. More and more organizations make them publicly available. And so um, we we collected thousands of, of such reports in our data bank, in our data set, um, which probably is, well, one of the few such data sets uh, which exist. And, um, well, we said... Considering the, you know, the, the technological innovations which we have currently, especially when it comes to the natural language processing and the language models, right, which allow us to analyze huge amounts of data, um, you know, that is a perfect point in time to employ these new, new, new methods and analyze these politics using these evaluation reports because they are all uh, written text, right? Um, so what we did recently, and it is already published uh, in the Review of International Organizations Journal, is that we collected, for, for, for initially for the first step, 750, no, I'm sorry, actually more, 1,000, about, about 1,000 um, uh, reports uh, from nine UN system organizations, which have different institutional settings, as I, as I described. And then we trained a language model um, by by manually labeling these reports uh, at the sentence level as to whether the sentence makes a positive or negative or neutral assessment of evaluated activity, right? Whether a sentence in evaluation report is making a judgment, and if yes, is it positive or neutral regarding the evaluated project, or is it a neutral sentence, right? And so we labeled that manually, thousands of such sentences, then put it into the model and trained the language model so that now we can automatically calculate the extent or the ratio um, of positive versus negative assessments at a sentence level in an evaluation report. And so you can imagine that we we have a a report where, let's say, 70% of all assessments are positive. Um, And that gives us a score, right? A sort of a performance score. Now, <laughs> we were in, in, in at the conferences and uh, research colloquiums, many asked us, well, is this mere counting of sentences actually tell us anything about the performance, right? And that is a very legitimate question. And we needed to validate, of course, this performance score. And so luckily, um, what we have is that the World Bank not only writes these evaluation reports, but the human analysts, experts also give a score to each evaluation report. So they tell, you know, from from zero to six, how good or bad, let's say, to put it simply, right, uh, the overall performance of that evaluated activity, which is described in the evaluation report is. And so we had an alternative numeric um, performance rating, which we could compare to our score based on the language model. And so we took 600 of World Bank reports. We analyzed them using our language model, which we trained for this. And then we observed a very nice positive and strong correlation between the World Bank scores given by a human and our calculated scores when it comes to the ratio between positive and negative assessments. 
and, uh, or to put it differently, the better the, a, a human scores the evaluation report, the higher is the uh, ratio of positive assessment sentences in these reports, meaning that in thousands of UN evaluations, which do not have such uh, numeric ratings as, as has the World Bank, we can use this language model and calculate a similar right validated uh, performance score based on the actual text in these, in these evaluations, um, which gives a chance uh, of, for, for many, many purposes. Just to give you one example, um, the organizations themselves can use this algorithm and identify outlier reports, which are, let's say, very negative or very positive in the content based on our language model. And then they can uh, take another look, like, right? So this is kind of a data quality tool to see what's happening there, especially given that um, they do not have these scores. Um, it's so difficult for them to understand uh, what do they actually have in those thousands of reports over, let's say, 20 years. There is no bird's eye perspective available. Now, with our tool and um, a data set and the algorithm, which everything is, is published and available online, um, from, in this article, it, it becomes possible, right? So this is, you know, where we are working on and we also try to use it and then show the scholars uh, potential applications. How can we, how, how can this be used? Um, one of the examples of how can this be used is in another article published by the Public Administration Review, where we demonstrate, as I briefly mentioned, that such reports which are produced by the centralized evaluation units are systematically more negative as to compare to those reports produced by um, the operative uh, IO units, such as the country offices. So basically, you know, having variables, then you can play around with these scores and try to understand what influences the performance ratings based on our language model. Um, and this hopefully will drive uh, significantly the research on the performance of international organizations more broadly beyond the mere research on the politics of evaluation itself. Mm. That sounds like fascinating and fabulous work. So thank you for telling us about kind of the book and what's continuing beyond that. I do usually ask at the end of interviews kind of what you're working on now that the book is done, but I, I think you've really just answered that quite comprehensively. Unless there's any other projects either you or Stefan are working on you'd like to highlight? Well, that is exactly what, uh, what the focus of ours is now on. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. It's not like there isn't a lot to work on there. So thank you very much for taking us through not just the book, really, but the whole research project. Um, for anyone looking to get into the details of this, the book is obviously titled The Politics of Evaluation in International Organizations, published by Oxford University Press. And as Vitas has just told us about, there's a lot more research ongoing. So I imagine you'd be quite interested if listeners reached out to either or both of you on it. Sure, definitely. Uh, please reach out and also if you have any ideas or um, recommendations or maybe even practical experiences working on one of these evaluations, we are very happy to talk about and discuss uh, further, further ideas and insights. Fabulous. Well, who knows? This might just be the start um, of conversation. So Vitas, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and telling us all about your and Stefan's work. Thanks for having me. 